I hope that you've been able to use your study guide in preparation for these messages from the book of Genesis. I want to ask us to once again bow as we pray before our message. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we come into your presence this morning asking you to direct our thoughts and our attention. We pray that you would give us your grace that we might understand the things of your word. We thank you that you have given us many helps to understand the Bible. And we thank you, as was mentioned in First Light, for faithful mothers who taught us the Bible when we were young. We commit this time to you now. We ask that your Holy Spirit would guide us. We pray in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. We come this morning to one of the very important verses of the Old Testament, a key verse. And we will get to that, but let's take a look at our outline. After the introduction, we'll talk about Abram's questioning of God and then God's answer in the form of a direction for an offering that he will offer and then God's reassuring Abram as he still has some questions. So we begin this morning with the question, how does a person make peace with God? Surely that's the basic question that we must have a very clear answer to and that we must be able to communicate to others. How does a person make peace with God? Here's a simple answer, Romans 5.1. The Apostle Paul writes under the direction of the Holy Spirit, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen so far in our study of the book of Genesis that when Adam disobeyed God, his sin caused a great gulf between God and man. Peace with God was broken at that point. Fortunately, God has built a bridge through the sacrificial death of his son so that we might be back in right relationship with him. The foundation of that bridge, I think, would be justification by faith. Now, if our enemy wants to knock out the bridge, the way of salvation, certainly he's going to be attacking this Bible doctrine. And that's what we see as it's been battered by liberalism and postmodernism and pragmatism and the emergent church and such writings as the New Perspectives on Paul by Anglican Bishop N.T. Wright. Roman Catholics convened the Council of Trent in 1544 to seek to counteract Martin Luther's teaching of justification by faith alone. That was one of the five solas of the Reformation, faith alone in the finished work of Christ alone. Well, the Catholics in the Council of Trent noted that if a man preached justification by faith alone, you would see such licentiousness in the church that you would be appalled. Sadly, in many instances, they were correct on that observation. But we're not concerned this morning about what they predicted that has come true in some part. We're concerned about the Word of God and what the Word of God says. And we want to remove ourselves from any distortion on both sides and get down to the Scripture and understand exactly what we are told there. 
Now, in our last lesson, we learned that after a spiritual victory, many times there comes a temptation. And you remember that Abram defeated a confederation of kings uh, with his own small security force, only 318 men. But then came the temptation from the king of Sodom that he would receive some of the goods that had been taken in the battle. He passed that temptation, but more would be coming. Now, Abram has some questions. In God's fourth communication, speaking to Abram, he spoke in a vision. We've seen the other communications. He's talking about building a great nation through Abram. Genesis 15 and verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. Some of the modern translations don't have it that way, but I think that's probably the best reading. God says, I am your shield and your exceeding great reward. After these things, you remember the courageous venture to rescue Lot, the victory, the blessing of Melchizedek, and then the temptation from the king of Sodom. After all those things, the word of the Lord came to Abram. Here's the first mention of word in the Bible, the word of the Lord. And also we see the first mention of the words vision and shield and reward. And this is also the first of the great I am's in Scripture. Recently in Bible study during the week, uh, we had a lesson on Jesus quoting some of these I am's concerning himself. I am the light of the world. I am that I am, claiming the name of God from Exodus 3. So this is where it begins. God says, I am your shield and your reward. Did you ever need a good word from the Lord? I think Abram did, and I believe God knew that. We see in the New Testament, Matthew 6 and verse 8, Therefore, do not be like them, the heathen, that repeat these vain repetitions. For your Father knows the things that you need before you ask Him. Now, He tells us to ask, and we shall receive and knock, and the door shall be opened, and so forth. But He knows our needs, and that is a comforting thought. And I think that he understands that Abram is having a little trepidation about the promise as the thoughts are going through Abram's heart. I would guess that it might be he's thinking that Cheddarly Omer and those bad boys from the east might be back with vengeance on their minds after Abram and his very small force had snuck up upon them in the middle of the night and you remember, defeated their army and took back all of the loot that had been gathered from the city of Sodom and took back also Lot, his nephew. Abram might have been wondering if they were going to be gathering a larger force and coming back down to his part of the country to make him pay for what he did. But there was at least one other fear camping out in Abram's heart. This was a reminder, I think, when God spoke to him of the previous promise that God had made. And so Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, seeing I go childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer 
of Damascus. Eleazar was his steward, so he would be the one to inherit the things of his household. Abram knew that he didn't have a son. How are we going to build a great nation without even having a son? We're reminded here of the day of small things. God has promised to build a great nation, and he's going to build it through an old man whose wife is barren. That's the way God works. He gets the glory. And we see that a number of times in Scripture. And then we heard yesterday morning, the Lord opens the womb. Praise the Lord. Genesis chapter 15, 4 and 5. Here's the answer from the Lord. Behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This one shall not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body will be your heir. Then he brought him outside and said, Look now toward the heaven and count the stars if you are able to number them. And he said, So shall your descendants be. That's a staggering promise to a guy 85 years old at this time, according to Genesis 16.16. That would be a staggering promise to a man of any age that his descendants would be numerous as the stars of the sky. Now we come to a key verse in the Old Testament. What did Abram have to do to be at peace with God? The same thing that anyone who ever came into a relationship with God had to do. Believe God and receive his offer of salvation. The New Testament, John 1.12, But as many as received him, Christ, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Not believe that there is a God, but put your hope and trust in him. And if you do put your hope and trust in him and Christ's provision, then certain things will happen in your life. Colossians 2, 6 and 7, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. And you remember that 1 John chapter 2 says, Whoever claims to be in Christ must walk as Jesus did. They might not be walking perfectly, but they would be going in Jesus' direction. And the rest of the verse in Colossians, So walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Here's the verse. Genesis 15:6, And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. How was Abram saved? I know you're getting tired of me saying that name, and in the very next lesson after next, we'll be coming to the name change, and we'll be calling this guy Abraham, and everybody will know who we're talking about. How was Abram saved? Not by keeping the law, because the law would not be given for another uh, several hundred years. Not by circumcision, because circumcision was not established until Abram was 99 years old. Abram was saved through faith in God's Word. He was justified 
before God. Wait a minute. How do we know that? Well, when it says Abraham believed God, it was credited to him as righteousness. That word for righteousness, sedakah, comes from a Hebrew root word, an older root word, sadak, and it means to be right or to be made right in a moral or legal sense. The word embodies all of God expects of his people. It's related to honesty and justice. And Abram's belief in God was credited to him as righteousness, or we might say as justice, just as if Abram had not ever sinned, as if he had completed everything God wanted him to do. Now, Abram didn't suddenly become a different person who was morally perfect. His legal status before God was changed from guilty to righteous. Not just to not guilty, but to righteous in right standing with God. It was as if Abram had obeyed God perfectly at that point. He's going to prove again in the future that he's not able to obey God perfectly, but he has faith. His belief, his faith was reckoned or counted to him as righteousness. Justification is a gift of God's grace which is received through faith alone. Now, we might ask, well, now, why are we uh, getting so nitpicky about terms and about what Scripture says? Can't we just all get together and say, yeah, we're saved by Christ and praise the Lord and that's it? Well, the Scripture says a little bit of leaven leavens the entire lump. So we want to be very careful that we stick with precisely what the Scriptures say and that we are not led astray in that. So we're saying that justification is a gift of God's grace, which is received through faith alone. That's not the definition of justification, but it does come as a gift from God. And you can see in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 that probably you have memorized, for by grace are you saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Well, that's the first reason, the word for righteousness. We know that Abram was justified. But then we have Paul's argument in the New Testament. I want to read some rather lengthy passages, and I just want to give it to you just as it's printed. We won't take time to study through these passages, but uh, you might take time at home. But uh, what does the meaning seem to be to you when we read it? The first is Romans 3, and beginning in verse 28. <clears throat> excuse me, Romans 3:28, and we'll read right on through the next chapter. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since God is one, he will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our father, according to the flesh? And then we carry on. For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. 
For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. To the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now what does that sound like to you? It sounds like, to me, justification by faith as a gift. I don't work for it. It's something God gives me. And then we go to Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it, that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And that's a quote from Deuteronomy 27:26. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now, just reading through there, it sounds to me like it's a gift that we receive through the exercise of our faith. And even our faith is a gift. So far, so good in the New Testament. But watch out. We are coming to what appears to be a contradiction. What are we going to do with this? We better have some good answers on these things. John 2.24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Ouch! That sounds exactly like what the Catholics have said all along, that God would never justify anybody who was not just. And first, they've got to become just. Now, Rome would say, you have to have grace, you have to have faith, you have to have the assistance of Christ, and you must have the righteousness of Christ infused or poured into your soul. His grace comes into your soul as God pours it in through the sacraments. And then you are able, with the help of Christ, to cooperate with that grace to such a degree that you will become righteous. Now, do you get that? It's much like a process. And you never quite know if you've got all the righteousness that you need and you can lose the righteousness if you commit certain sins and go back to the beginning. And then you do penance and you may gain some ground again, but if you die in the middle, you would have to go to purgatory where your sins 
would be purged so that you could be righteous in right standing with God. Now, it appears to me that the Roman Catholic doctrine of justification is similar to our doctrine of sanctification. But what we're saying is that God declares a man to be legally righteous in his sight. And God clothes us, as you might say, with the righteousness of Christ. Now, if you look underneath my robe, my white robe of Christ, you might still see some selfishness and some meanness and some jealousy. But I am moving in the direction of Christ, stumbling as it were. If I'm moving in the other direction, then maybe I've just been fooled about the white robe of righteousness, meaning maybe I've never really committed my life to Christ. Uh, Maybe he's not there, his spirit ruling in my heart. Now, he offers a universal offer to everyone, whosoever will may come. If you're thirsty, come to the waters and drink. So as you're hearing this this morning and you're wondering, do you have on the white robe of righteousness, which God gives to a person? If you don't have it on or you're not sure, ask him for it. And I believe that he will give it to you. Now, let me ask you, thinking about the difference there between what we would say, the Protestants would say in the Reformation, and what the Roman Catholics would say, are you righteous right now? I'm not talking about are you clothed with the righteousness of Christ, but inside, are you righteous? Is everything you do and think and say righteous before God? I couldn't say that it would be for me. In fact, dozens of times, probably hundreds of times every day, we slip down from the mark of loving God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, imagine that, and loving my neighbor as myself. But I am declared righteous. If I die, uh, like Paul, I believe I'll be absent from the body and present with the Lord. But now that I have that right legal standing and God's Spirit lives within my heart, I can begin that process with effectiveness of putting off the old self and getting a new attitude in my heart and putting on the new self to be like Christ. And I believe that's a, right, a lifelong process. What if somebody says, well, hey, I'm righteous today. Well, there's some scripture that talks about that. And I'll give you Romans 3.10 right after we look at the difference here. Infused righteousness, according to Rome, is poured in. His grace is poured into us. Then we work to merit the righteousness of Christ. But we're not saying that. We're saying that Christ's righteousness is imputed to us, credited to us. Entire books have been written about this. John Bunyan. Justification by an imputed righteousness. Jonathan Edwards, justification by faith alone. This is a big issue even today because many people are saying, well, we really are not so far apart and we just need to get everybody back together and it doesn't matter so much exactly when you get the righteousness. I would say it does matter. According to Scripture in Romans 3, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. 
all have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, I would say none is righteous apart from the righteousness of Christ and the power of His Spirit. We can do civil good. We can do social good in the community. We can feed the poor and help people. But that's not going to have any merit with God. It's only His Son, Christ, the foundation of the bridge that's going to get us across there. Well, now, uh, back to James, and let's take a look. What are we going to do with this? James says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone in James 2.24. Paul says in Romans 3.28, for we maintain that a man is justified by, justified by faith apart from the works of the law. It looks like a contradiction, but I don't believe it really is when we examine some things. So we're going to take a look, according to Matthew Henry's advice, at the context of each of those statements. Paul is talking about works done in obedience to the law of Moses before any heed is given to the faith of the gospel. In fact, you remember who he was talking to, the Pharisees to whom he was speaking, and they never did get to the faith of the gospel because they were so focused on obeying the law, the law of Moses. Paul is talking here about the before of faith in the gospel. But then James is talking about works done in obedience to the gospel as the fruit and results of the work of the gospel in one's heart. And we might say that's the after of the gospel. Once you get the gospel... You're going to have to be doing some good works. If you don't, you probably didn't get the gospel. They're both talking, Paul and James are talking about seeking to magnify the faith of the gospel as a means of justification. But again, Paul argues showing the insufficiency of anything that you do before genuine faith. There's nothing that you can do to merit the merit of Christ. James argues by presenting the essential and indisputable effects of genuine faith. If you have genuine faith, show me your faith by your works because it's going to result in some good works in your life. Well, here's the next section. Paul is addressing those who sought to depend on their works to earn merit in the sight of God. James is preaching to those whose faith has no fruit. He's preaching to the cheap grace crowd who say, all you have to do is believe. You don't have to live a Christian life. You don't have to do anything. All you have to do is just believe. James said, no, 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 no. If you don't have any fruit, you don't have any faith. And he makes it pretty clear right there in James chapter 2. Paul is speaking of justification, referring to this legal standing before a holy God. And James is addressing the matter of one's faith being justified in the sight of man. James says, show me your faith without works, and I will show you my faith by my works. Am I claiming to be justified? If I am, here would be the good works. Here would be some things in my behavior that would evidence that. That's what James appears to be talking about. We might say that Paul 
is talking about how we're going to get there. James is talking about what it looks like after we have arrived. So we would be careful to say that our faith is not the moving force that causes God to justify. In other words, it's not my strong faith that moves God to justify me. He justifies according to His own divine prerogative. I believe the Scripture is clear. And faith is the means exercised by the receiver of that grace in accepting Christ. I receive God's grace. My heart is moved. I can understand some things now. And I say, thank you, Lord. And I receive it with the empty hands of faith. The touchdown pass won the game. But who threw the ball? The quarterback or the receiver? Well, not only did the receiver have to throw the ball, he had to teach the the quarterback how to throw the ball. He had to teach the receiver how to catch the ball. And as God enables me to exercise this faith, faith then is the means by which I am going to receive what God has given me. James is talking about the completed process. Paul is talking about the front end. So, as we look at this, we can see that there are two different things going on here in terms of the context. But uh, what happens in James 2.21? Was not Abram our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. As a result of his works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says... And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. Now, we could know that righteousness was already credited to Abraham way before Isaac was born, even days and years before he offered him up on the altar as a sacrifice. So we might say that the reality of Abram's profession in God was justified by what he did. People could see that he had his faith in God. And his faith was perfected. That means it was complete. It was consummate in character. It was not perfect, but mature. That word there, uh, perfect, comes from teleos. It means that his faith was mature. He was moving toward uh, maturity in Christ. So the just shall live by faith. But the faith of the just, now this first comes from the scripture, these last are my words. The faith of the just shall live by food and exercise, the food of God's word and the exercise of application. Faith comes from hearing, hearing comes from the word of God. So how are we to understand this doctrine of justification? You've heard the story. One day, Lucy and I were teaching in an inner city school in Birmingham, Alabama, and our car was stolen. Amazingly, it was the oldest car in the lot, but the easiest to steal at that time. I was really alarmed, but the police were not too concerned. When they finally got there after about two hours, they said, hey, about 15 cars are stolen every day in the city, and here's a number you can call to see if your car will be recovered. So the next uh, week, I called, and my car was recovered. 
But here's the amazing thing. It had been my car, but now it belonged to the city of Birmingham. And I had to pay a fee before I could get my own car back and take possession of it. I had to redeem my car, we might say. So I went down one night to buy back my car. And the law was satisfied, and if the price were paid, then I could possess my car once again. That evening I went to a remote place where all the stolen cars were stole, kind of like the automotive graveyard. But it looked like an automotive junkyard of all the torn up vehicles and fenders missing and all of those kind of things. A large place with many automobiles. And then I saw my car, but it was filthy. There were cigarette butts and trash and broken glass all over the place, but not only was my car polluted by sin, it was dead in sin. It wouldn't even crank. There was not even a place to put the key in the ignition. Now the guy said, don't worry about that. You can crank it the same way they did with a screwdriver. They've stripped off the cowling off of the steering column. And sure enough, you could crank it with a screwdriver. The engine roared to life. My 98-olds was born again. Still dirty, but born again into the family of the original owner. So I paid the fee, and my car's status changed. Now it belonged to me once again. And so I got in my car to drive home. It was filthy, but at least it was in the right ownership now. I got in the car which was uh, justified, just as if it had never been stolen. And I turned on the radio, and the local rapper station blew me right out of my seat. Snoopy Dog at 9,000 decibels. How did Snoopy Dog get in my car? Well, he probably came in through the broken window. I began to think when my car was in bondage, it was really corrupted by the desires and lusts of those who had stolen the car. So I changed uh, stations and drove on home, and the next day I cleaned my car thoroughly, and I welcomed my car back into the family. Now it was in a place of dignity and respect as part of the Welch family where it ought to be. Now that kind of reminds me of the process. We are dead in our trespasses and sins, the Scripture says. But Christ redeems us. He paid the price at Calvary, and then he takes possession of us as his Holy Spirit comes to regenerate our hearts and help us to see our sinfulness. We thought we looked pretty good before that, but then we can see those things that God sees, a holy God. And then after we have been redeemed, we are justified. Our legal status is changed. We're in the right family. Then begins the cleanup process, and we call that justification. Now, the car now has a new master, sweet old Bob, who tries to treat this car as it should be treated and take care of it. You can clean up your life and get rid of the bad language and wrong habits and all those kind of things, and you'll look a lot better, and you ought to do that. And people will look at you and say, wow, what's come over this guy? But that won't count one bit in terms of your legal standing before God. 
Only the righteousness of Christ would make any difference in my standing with God, my legal standing. And that's what we're calling justification. Could you pay your own fine? You could by spending eternity in hell. I don't know anybody that would say, well, I've heard a few say, yeah, I'll go to hell with the rest of them. But that's a terrible thing even to think. Or you can accept what Christ did for you on the cross. He redeemed you and gave you the gift of faith. And the moment you exercised faith, you were counted as righteous. And that, I believe, is justification by faith. But what if you believe God and you still have a few questions? Is that bad? Does that show a lack of faith? I'll tell you, I have questions all the time about things I read in the Bible because some pretty deep things in there. And I have to start digging around to see if I can find some answers. The answer to that question, is it bad? It depends on what you do with the answers to those questions. Now, Abram is going to get an answer that meant a lot to him. It wouldn't mean too much to us, probably, because we don't do things this way. And Abram's answer that is not mentioned by God is, wait on the Lord. Many times that is God's answer to us. And God talks a lot about that in the scripture. So it depends on what you're going to do with the answer to the questions that you have asked God. And we'll see next week, Abraham can't wait. He just can't wait. He's got his own plan. And many times we have our own plans for fulfilling what we think would be the work of the Lord. Well, here's the question, verse 8. And he said, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it, the land? That's pretty good because he's in a rather precarious place there in Canaan. And now we come to the offering, and here's God's answer to his question about possessing the land. And God said to him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought all these to him and cut them in two down the middle, placed each piece opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds in two. These are the clean animals that are later going to be stipulated as sacrifice, worthy sacrifice pointing to the sacrifice of Christ. Now, in that day, to make a covenant, you would divide the animals, put one half on each side, and then the two parties of the covenant would walk down between the animals, signifying that they were ratifying the covenant, that they agreed to keep the conditions of the covenant. Well, now something else happens in verse 12, right in the middle of this covenant business. God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Abram, and terror and great darkness came upon him, and it was a prophecy in keeping with the terror and great darkness. His descendants would be enslaved in a foreign land 400 years. He's rounding it off 400 years. Because in verse 16, he talks about to the fourth generation, they shall come hither again, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So here's this prophecy about the children of Israel going down to Egypt. And they are going to be in some trouble down there. But they're going to come out with great possessions. What does this mean, the iniquity of the Amorites? 
The cup of iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Well, I would say that uh, at some point, the cup of iniquity is going to be full, and then it will be too late. There's a progress in the course of sin in individuals and in nations. And when the cup of iniquity is full for a nation, God judges that nation. And we need to be praying every day for God's mercy that he would give us more time to get things turned around in this land. They were told in verse 15, Abram would die in peace, be buried at a ripe old age. Great promises, but we need assurance. In the last section, we see God's reassuring word that comes to Abram. Again, it probably wouldn't mean too much to us. But it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. The stove that passed between the pieces was probably a cylindrical fire pot like they use, still use sometimes in that part of the country. And then there was a torch, a flaming torch that passed through the pieces. And this reminds us of the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that later on are going to lead the Israelites. And I think what God is saying here is that he is unilaterally ratifying the covenant. Abraham was filled with fear and great darkness. He didn't do anything. He didn't pass between the pieces. God passed between the pieces, symbolized by the flaming torch. And I think God is saying is, I promised to do these things by myself. In other words, he is calling upon himself uh, as he is swearing the promise. Hebrews 6.13, when God made a promise to Abraham because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. At this point, Abraham was a recipient of God's amazing grace. He was the receiver of what had been given to him. All he had to do was trust God to keep his end of the bargain. And God specifically promised in verse 18 that he would give Abram's descendants the land from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates. Now let me ask you the question in closing here. Do you need to make peace with God this morning? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Has something upset your peace with God? Is something telling you you need to be in a right relationship with Him? If that's the case, I would encourage you today to commit your life to Christ or recommit your life to Him if you found yourself drifting toward your own old nature instead of toward Christ. I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer, and I would invite you in the quietness of your own heart to confess your sin, to ask Christ's forgiveness for your sin, to ask Him to take control of your life in this process of sanctification and make you the person that He would like for you to be conformed to His image. And then thank Him for what He's promised to do. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for the Scriptures. And we thank You for those who have gone on before who have studied the Scriptures and who may be able to help us 
in our understanding. We thank you for your Holy Spirit that we call upon to teach us and counsel us and guide us. Lord, we thank you that we can stand before you justified by the blood of Christ and that no one can snatch us out of your hand and that uh, Christ, who began a good work in us, will perform it until the judgment day when he comes. We thank you for that, but we pray that that would not produce license in our lives to live just any way. You tell us if we love you, we would keep your commands. And we thank you that we can keep your commands not out of a sense of duty, uh, not out of a sense of uh, being punished if we stumble, but we can keep your commands because we love you and you give us the grace to do so. Lord, I pray if there's someone here this morning who has not received that grace, that this might be the time as they would call upon you in repentance and in true saving faith. Lord, we have many things to pray about this morning, and I pray that you would guide us as we move into our time of prayer. And we ask these things in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.